Welcome, everybody. I'm Mary Caldor. I'm the co-director of LSE Global Governance. Um, I'm really happy today that we've got Zainab Salbi from Women to Women International. Um, I met Zainab several years ago in the middle of the war when she was talking about her wonderful book about women's stories. Uh, in Iraq, and now she's gone on to create this amazing organization. Um, and so I do hope not only that it's going to be a very interesting evening, but at the end you'll all join her organization. <laughs> and um, well, with that, I'll just let Zainab start, and then we'll have a little film, and then we'll have some time for questions. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Mary. Um, I have to say, first of all, not only thank you for hosting this, and thanks for uh, Jen Lothrop, uh, who helps us in a lot of the organizing in here, but it's a huge honor to be back at LSE. You see, I graduated from here 10 years ago, oh, I didn't and know it was really one of the best years of my life. I had lots of fun not only partying, but also <laughs> uh, I learned that you learn as much from your peers as you do from your lectures and from your um, professors and each other. But it was really one of the most um, stimulating experiences in my life, and I still today cherish it. And it was during that time that I came up with the idea that we need to expand Women for Women Internationals to, to the UK. And since then, we have opened the UK office. And we have Kate Newstead and many of my colleagues here, which I want to thank as well for today, uh, are joining us today. So for that, thank you very much. It's great to be back. Um, Though I'm not talking about the Middle East today, I cannot help but talk about the Middle East a little bit today. Allow me, I'm a, an Iraqi, uh, uh, an Arab, and a Muslim, and it doesn't matter my religion, but I'm so excited about what's happening over there. I just am sorry, I know it's Afghanistan, it's not the Middle East, you know. <laughs> And I know a lot of people confuse Afghanistan with the Middle East, you know, at least in America they do, so it's not in the Middle East, but in the Middle East, in the Arab world, it is so absolutely fantastic. And I, you know, I, it's exciting for me, again, because I lived in fear, and I honestly know what it fears, and that's a completely different topic. The, the fear that I grew up with in uh, Saddam Hussein's regime, um, where it's, it's like a poison gas leaked into your home every day, and you breathe it every day, and you resist it every day, and you sometimes die in it every day. So for people to break up their silence, for people to speak up, for people to take on their own physical space and not shy away from it and not be embarrassed and have the audacity to speak up. Oh my God, the Arabic signs in Egypt says leave. I mean, it's like, what? It's amazing in the Middle East. I, you know, it's just absolutely amazing. And to have it move from um, Tunis to Egypt to Sudan to Yemen to Jordan is absolutely fabulous. So it's a moment of hope. And I also understand there in some of the news coverage that I've been hearing, people say, 
oh my god uh, yeah we're excited sort of for the Arab people but we're also scared which regime is going to take over is it going to be the religious ones is it going to be you know should they have an autocratic regime it's much better it's safer you can you know control it uh, is democracy appropriate for the Arab world you know a, a lot of these things that I, you hear it on and off people in private conversation and sometimes in, in some radio shows today on the taxi ride actually um, and the truth is no one knows what's going to happen, but it's change. It's already happened. And for change to happen, it's jumping off the cliff. And sometimes you do not know where you're going to land. But that's part of the process, and that's part of the experience. I know in my personal life, every change that has happened in me was jumping off the cliff. And you hope you land, and I have. And when there are misfortunes happening, and there may be misfortunes happening in the Middle East, we, don't know, we do not know, they often turn into fortunes. So it's about the transformation and how one have the audacity to actually jump off the cliff and turn it, and it's a process. So in that time, though, as it relates to what's the topic of today's uh, discussion, in such time, if you may, I, I wouldn't call it time of crisis. It's not a crisis. It annoys me when CNN is calling it crisis. Um, but in that times of turmoil, change, whatever it is, there are also lots of opportunities. That's when negotiations happen. Um, and where women fit into that opportunities, into basically, let's see, it's interesting where, where women fit into that opportunities. Often, historically, women are told, step back. You know, we need to negotiate peace. It's more important to have peace agreement than let's not be distracted in terms of women's rights and all of these things. Step back for right now. Let us negotiate the larger peace. We'll get back to you. That happened in countries like Palestine. That happened in Bosnia, actually. That happened in Kosovo. That happens in Iraq under American and uh, British uh, invasion. Um, that happened in many, uh, many, many times. A step back. We'll take care of you later, and then we'll get back to you. Uh, we'll get back to you in time. Don't worry about it. But that attitude, because crisis, you see, presents opportunities. So for me, point number one is, the, one of the points is that if women don't take advantage of such opportunities, if they take advantage of such opportunities, we can move forward 10 years in terms of changes. If we do not take advantage of these crisis opportunities, then sometimes you move backward, and you, when you move backward, you move backward in a significant ways too. Iraqi women, for example, is an example where women could not capture the opportunities presented by the crisis of the war um, for a variety of reasons, some of it in their hands, some of it not in their hands, actually. Um, and as a result, I would argue Iraqi women moved backward in every single sense of definition, socially, politically, and, well, less politically, socially and economically, for sure, less politically so. And there are women who have taken advantage of that crisis. South Africa is a good example, and they moved forward, and they moved forward uh, much more significantly. So that's a, that moment of change and instability presents an opportunities. We must capture it. When we don't, we step backward much more. When we do, we step forward in more progressive ways. The second thing is that this whole attitude, which really very much exists, this is not an exaggeration, this is very much of a daily consciousness, I would argue, that women are secondary issue, women's rights and the protection of women's rights is a secondary issue, is very much, in my opinion, missing on the fact that women are bellwether for the direction of society. 
I would argue violence often starts with women and progress often starts with women. So rather than seeing women as a marginal discussion, which we usually are, you know, invite a couple of women to the meeting, check. Uh, invite a couple of minorities, check. You know, uh, you do this, you know. Um, we need to switch that into having women as central uh, to the discussion. When I say violence often starts through women, we are, I, the, way, the only way I can see this, we're like the softest skin into the society. Bill Herzia and some diseases enter through the softest skins, or another one which may not be appropriate, we're like the kitchen door to the society. When people enter through the kitchen door, it's not a formal entry, but it entered the house anyway, as opposed to people who enter through the main door. You know, it's a formal entry. So things often enters, violence often enters through that kitchen door and it's not paid attention to because it's just women. It doesn't impact us, but it does enter the society and the house and whatever, and the family nevertheless. A good example about that is actually the Taliban and Afghanistan. When the Taliban first uh, came, they first brought law and order. You know, so they control the law. You see, religious groups or private, uh, religious groups often want to control the private sphere. And that private sphere mostly is controlled by the law, family law, uh, which entails marriage, divorce, inheritance, custody, things like that. Um, and because the, the secular groups often want to do trade and uh, business and all of that, so the trade office always will give you the private, the, the private sphere and give us the public sphere. I'll go back to the Taliban in a second. So you see that trade often is happening in political negotiation. It happened during British colonialism of India, for example. One of the worst laws in India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan happened during British colonialism vis-a-vis -vis women. But we'll give you free trade and we'll give you market and all of these things. It happened in Iraq in the midst of American occupation of Iraq give us uh, democracy and give us free trade and all of that, and in, in exchange we'll give you family law. So family law in, in Iraq right now is by far, by far worse than it was 50 years ago. I was reading the family law from 1958 and I was like, oh, I wish we have that now, <laughs> from 1958. And so that, that trade-off often happens and is not paid attention to. It's just women. It impacts women more. It doesn't impact us men. It's just women. Again, back to the Taliban, if you look at the Taliban first, they went, brought security, law and order into the country, law, and then they started at, um, attacking women. And as one of my male colleagues in Afghanistan said, he said, first, it started with women. When they said, you have to wear the burqas, and you cannot leave your home, and paint your windows, and you cannot go to school, and all of these things. And he said, truth be said, Zainab, we all said, it's just women, it's okay. And truth be said, I would argue, we all said it's just Afghan Muslim women, their culture. Well, eventually, that same young man told me, well, eventually it hit us, the men. And he said, the men, and he said, we, you know, and I didn't know the story of the men. He said, we could not shave our beard. And if we had a beard, it had to be dirty and it could not be uh, trimmed uh, well. So he said, before we used to leave our homes, we'd actually burn the edges of our beard with the, with the lighter to, make, to show that it's rough. And we put some dust on it. We were, had to wear the turban, and et cetera, et cetera. And he said, it got to a stage in which when I walked, people were afraid of me thinking I am the Taliban. 
And when they walked, I was afraid of them thinking that they are the Taliban. But he said it started with the women, and truth be said, I did not pay attention and did not care too much. And then when it hit me, I did pay attention and I did care. And I would argue when, until it hit America in its front door, um, we all cared, and it changed the world. And the story for me starts with women. So that's the story when we have to look at women as bellwether for the direction of a society, rather than a marginal discussion. The flip side, the good argument, is uh, the, the progress, and I'm, um, is actually South Africa and it's Rwanda. And I will talk less about South Africa. I talk more about Rwanda in this particular example. Right after, right after the genocide, uh, about 70% of the Rwandese population were women because both men were killed and they were refugees, not only because men were killed. Um, and they were in exile. And there was a lot of progressive laws that changed in Rwanda vis-a-vis -vis women. And you have, and we can, there's a whole different discussion on Rwanda, but the, 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 the gist of it for right now is that you have now 53% of their parliament are women. You have women very active in participation in decision making. Every single ministry has a gender budgeting. Every single province, mayor, uh, governor, everything, they have gender advisor and gender budgeting. And just from a grassroots perspective, the indicators for the, the changes in, our, in the women we serve in terms of their political participation or economic participation are far higher than other countries, even though our team, our staff may be much better in other countries. <laughs> frankly, you know, especially in health indicators or political participation. 15% of the women we graduate, grassroots women, are running for local elections. And these are illiterate, very poor women, compared to much lower results in other countries. So it does have an impact, you know, that change that started with investment in women does have an impact 17 years later in Rwanda, one of the cleanest countries in Africa at the moment. And there's a lot of issues there. We can get there, there later. But the point I want to make, Rather than seeing women on a marginal discussion, we need to see women as a bellwether, as an indicator for the direction of a society. Um, and that shifted to the center discussion. There's a Talmudic saying, saying we see things as we are, we do not see things as they are. Um, and I would say that we see wars as a frontline discussion and we don't see wars as a backline discussion. You see, in all our coverage of war, um, we talk about the troops, the fighting, the military, the weapons, the political aspects of it. And that is what we see of war. And that is a true aspect of war, and that aspect is led by men. That is what men see, and that's what men mostly, not all, but mostly what men encounter war. And what we don't see, and now, and the flip side of that, even in addressing how you address aid or development or all of these things, is also seen from a frontline discussion, as in distribute aid in Afghanistan from planes. Um, and that's good enough for people. You know, they just get packages of plane distributed. That did happen in Afghanistan. Secondhand clothing, military doing development projects. And I don't know if you saw, uh, there's a recent documentary about uh, one of the bases in Afghanistan. And it was about the U.S. troops, and I can't remember the name of the documentary, but it was the U.S. troops in that military base. Very tense area. And there's a fighting between the Taliban and the U.S. troops. And the village is holding this fighting, and both wants the, uh, both wants, uh, the, the support of the villagers. 
And there's one scene in which a cow of one of the village got stuck in the barbed wires of the troops. And the troops try to, uh, of the US troops, they tried to release a cow. They couldn't release a cow. They shot the cow. They ate the cow. They're very happy about it on, on, on video, you know, very happy about it. Fine. The villagers came and they said, Where's our cow? And the soldiers, you see them nervous. I don't know if uh, you've seen it in this movie. The soldiers, you see them nervous, and they talk to their commander, and they said, well, the translator said, you sort of have to pay for the cow, and it's $400. Now, I work with a lot of cows um, because we do microcredit lending and all of these things, so I learned so much about cows. This is a very cheap price for a cow. Usually, it's $2,000, really, <laughs> you know? Um, but it's in Afghanistan, in the middle of nowhere, $400. They call their commander, and he says, no. No $400. Uh, you pay them food, pay them beans, rice, no $400. And the villagers, the elders, left very upset and insulted. Now, when you see war from a frontline discussion, fighting all of these things, you don't understand that if you just pay the cow's price, $400, it's actually one step towards making peace. It's just easier to pay that $400 and that bullet, which I don't know how much it costs, but not too less, too much less. So we need to shift the meaning of war and peace from only exclusively looking at it from a frontline discussion to looking at it from a backline discussion as well. Don't cut off the, as it's true, as there is the fighting, but there is the backline discussion. And the backline discussion is run by women. It's witnessed by women, it's run by women, and they are impacted the most. In terms of casualties, and Mary, you are the expert on that, 90% of modern war casualties are civilians, 75% at least of some records are women and children, 80% of refugees worldwide are women and children, that's very much true in Afghanistan. So they get the, the brunt of it, first of all, the, 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 the heavy part of it. In terms of life, now I grew up in the midst of the Iraq-Iran war, and, and it's so interesting because my consciousness was always that, well, war is not only the front line, the war is the back line as well. In terms of life, they are exclusively almost responsible for keeping the family going. And what we don't understand as we cover the issues of war, at least in the media, that you know, life continues to go in war. You fall in love, you go to school, you get married, you have a boyfriend, you break up, you know, you do whatever it is, you get a job, you do all of these things in the midst of war. You go to a birthday party, you have an exam, you're scared from your exam, everything you think about, you go, it goes on in war. And yet we, it's, it's interesting because for me, this is such a common sense, right? We should all be conscious about that, but I get more surprised as people say, oh, I never thought about it. So we need to be conscious of that backline discussion of war because... Not only because how we shape the development of humanitarian aid and development aid and all of these things, because peace needs to be explained or go about or viewed, not from stopping of the fighting only, but of the building of peace as well, which means a backline discussion. A Southern Sudanese woman, once I met her and I was there and said, what's peace for you? And she looked at her shoes for a while, and or, well, sandals, and uh, she said, peace means I have toenails. And I was like, excuse me? Toenails? What does that mean? And she said, well, for 18 years during the war, I walked 
because I was kidnapped twice by the rebels and I was made slave in that uh, period. I had to carry water and ammunition for them. I had to be raped by them. So I was scared of staying in one place. And I kept on walking and not sleeping in one place more than five nights to avoid, you know, to avoid stability. And I lost my toenails in the process. And war for me, and this was soon after the assignment of the, uh, the signing of the peace agreement, she said, war for me, me, I mean, the peace for me means I stay in one place and I have stability and it means my toenails are growing back. Now, unless we understand peace from a toenails perspective, seriously, we're missing on the whole argument about it because it is by far not the simple ending of war. And because it's also that impacts how do you go about humanitarian aid, how do you go about development aid, how do you, about, how do you go about capturing people's agency. You see in the aftermath of war, I argue that people are um, most active agent. They, they, the memory of the old life still exists and fresh. Of the fact whether you are poor or you are rich, the fact that you had a home and stable home is still very much alive. And the desire and the wanting to go back to it is very alive. And how you develop, how you shape the definitions of war or peace is very much is how it impacts the development of aid and development projects in a way that captures the agency of people and them wanting to stand up on their feet as opposed to being pacified and told, just go home and we'll throw you some uh, food from the airplane. And I'm exaggerating in this example, though it is a true example. So that's one thing. Second thing is that we must, must include women at the negotiating table. And that's the whole point of my uh, sharing today. We must include women at the negotiating table, both because they're getting impacted the most, they have the softest entry to another story of the society, and because they have the most uh, at stake to keeping uh, a lasting peace. So how we define peace the investment that goes in military and police and army versus investment in um, development infrastructure and all of these things is very relevant. And that's when Afghanistan comes. So you know, last year alone, uh, America invested about $150 billion on the army in Afghanistan and Iraq, compared to about $150 million on development in these two countries. Iraq, alas, is uh, gone. Not a, well, we'll see, that's a different. Um, uh, but you see the, there's $150 billion in one year for the army compared to about $150 million for development and aid. What women define, when the reason you need them to be at the negotiating tables, not only because you need to follow, we need to follow UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which stipulate that, but also women are saying, we need more development aid. We need more what they're defining nation building. Uh, we need more infrastructure. We need, this is how we stabilize our families. That's how we uh, get our acts together, basically. That's. And as we are talking about Afghanistan today, in a time in which everyone is wondering what can we do, they are actually, we are still seeing this whole aspect from a frontline discussion. Uh, a, a military expert in a public foreign Senate, for, Senate Foreign Relations Committee in America was saying this is about killing as many Taliban as possible. That was July of last year. It's about at the end of the day, we need to be practical, it's about killing as many Taliban as possible. 
And when I was in the same testimony, I was talking about actually it's really about building infrastructure and helping people get a better life, proven you know, in other countries that if you give people a better life and infrastructure and electricity and water and roads and all of these things, they actually would, that's how you sort of stabilize life. Um, I was attacked saying, Miss Selby, we are in the business of war. We are not in the business of nation building. So nation building is a dirty word, at least in America right now. Uh, all of, and I really mesmerized by how could nation building be a dirty word and vis-a-vis -vis war that is seeing as still an acceptable word. And so, any, so we need to get women at the discussion table in order to redefine what war and what peace means. I was last in Afghanistan in August of last year. And while there I met a woman who was six years old when she was promised to be married. She was 15 years old when she got married. And she was 16 years old when she became a widow and a single mother. And that happened during the Taliban time. And she said she was so poor, living with her in-laws. And uh, she one day had to leave and had to sell hats in the street. She said, I owned one pair of shoes. And the Taliban caught me selling hats. And they were upset. So they took my one pair of shoes and beat me up with it. And they broke it. And I wasn't sure, actually, as I was talking with her, which one hurt her the most. The beaten and the humiliation or the fact that they broken her only one pair of shoes. And, and it's, it's like the way she was, it's, it hurt her that they broke that pair and they, and they beat her. So she said, it was just like she was, I was beaten and her in-laws were treating her badly and there's poverty. Um, and she talks about how her life changed when the Taliban were overthrown. Uh, because she, there was progress in Afghanistan vis-a-vis -vis women in the last 10 years. You, we cannot deny that progress. There was, compared to Taliban's era. <laughs> So just put everything in perspective. This is not everything is good and Afghan women are doing very well. This is good progress. It's progress. It's not good enough. There's so much more to do, but it's progress. We need to acknowledge and we need to push forward. So she talks about how she, you know, in her case, she came to Women for Women International's program. She, you know, we, we basically believe in a theory of change that access to knowledge plus access to resources leads to lasting change. And so every woman in our program gets an educational program that teaches her about her rights. Uh, she gets a vocational and business skills program that literally gives her vocational and business skills. And at the end of the year, she graduates and we help her get an income. You know, and we measure our reality by is she, does she have an income? Does she have a, um, a safety network? Women need safety network to hold them. Is she well, healthy, physically, all of that? And is she a decision maker? And we measure her decision making in the household as well as in the community. So we, so to see the pattern of changes in, in terms of social changes. So she goes into the programs. This is a very good successful story. And she started an embroidery program. Believe me, we don't only do embroideries. We do a lot of non-traditional skills, particularly in agriculture and, and farming initiatives and tile production, all kind of things. But in her case, it was embroidery. She did a side business, and she was hired by us because she's one of our best trainers. And she now earns between all of it, uh, I don't know, $450 a month, huge. Really good salary. Well, not huge, but a very good salary. 
um, she was very proud. She said, I'm my daughter, I'm determined to send her to college. And I returned myself to school. Huge, huge movement. And as she was telling me that, in that same day, earlier on, I had met with parliamentarians, women and men, who were saying there are negotiations happening between the Taliban's and the Karzai small surroundings. And we do not know what's the negotiations. Women are not included in the negotiations. And we are being betrayed. And not only Karzai is betraying us, you Americans and British and the Allies are betraying us. You promised us prosperity and you came in the name partially of women's rights. And now you're saying chop chop, too much, perhaps it's not conciliable to have women's rights in Islam and in Afghanistan. Perhaps it's just not possible, so too bad. And the truth is that the story is complicated. The story is also, and this is a quote from one of the close advisors to Karzai in this particular reconciliation process that is going with the Taliban, who said, off the record, he said, women are, yes, one of the agenda items in the negotiations. And yes, they will have to compromise. I'm not denying that. But don't worry, it's not too much. It's just their mobility and their appearances. And this was a cool man. This was a liberal. He described himself as a liberal man. And so by even when you have a good man in here, this is not about a man or a woman. This is about women speaking up for themselves and for what they believe peace should be. And in women's perspective, my mobility is relevant. And my access to resources is very much relevant to peace and how, how I hold peace in here. Um, so how, so, and that's the reason. So you have the political discussions happening. Legally speaking, this is between the Taliban and the Afghan government. So when you talk to Americans about it, I have not talked to the British government about it, but when you talk to government officials about it, they said we have nothing to do with it. But NATO transports these, uh, uh, some elements of the Taliban we all know it's happening. I think there's a recent BBC coverage of the Talib, one of the Taliban saying we want to negotiate. And I'm not saying don't negotiate or not. This is not my role. My role is nothing can happen in Afghanistan. We cannot hold peace if women are not fully included at the negotiating table. I, am, I do not know what they want. They know what they want. But as their sister, I have an obligation to, to, to roar and to echo their voices of saying we have an obligation towards them money, political power, whatever it is, America and England and the Allies generally have a huge authority over there and we have much to do there. And so this is not an easy discussion. There's an invasion in here, there's a foreign occupation, there is a women's rise and there is a Taliban and you want peace and America wants withdrawal and I don't know about England but there's all of these things. It's not the easy one. But it is, for me, a very easy decision. How do you look at peace and be able for all of us to look at ourselves in the eyes, particularly politicians, and say we did not sacrifice women? And we are this close to sacrificing women again in Afghanistan. One woman, to quote, told me, do you really want to do that? Do you really want to do, say, again, it's just women, you know, we'll, we'll just compromise them and then have you be hit again? Ten years later, do you really want to try the, your, your, your philosophy again and be hit again ten years later in America? Or do you want to learn from your lessons and be proactive and say, we cannot, um, we cannot have peace agreement in Afghanistan without women fully included? Now, um, 
And that's why Women for Women International, and I unfortunately I'm not, didn't talk much about the organization, um, which I know my team will not like me for that. And that's why I think there's a video to make sure that we will talk about the group. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that's why Women for Women International is um, focusing the celebration of International Women's Day. This is the hundredth, marks the 100th year anniversary of International Women's Day this March 8th. And we're focusing all our pledge and all our demands on asking for everyone, the allies particularly, but everyone to ensure that Afghan women are at the negotiating table, no more, no less. And truth be said, whatever they choose, I will respect it. I don't care. Uh, the, our choice, our, our work is to make sure that the, not only we abide by international law, but morally, but by, abide by our moral responsibility uh, to ensure that they are represented. So please join us on International Women's Day by not only signing the pledge, but also we are actually as, um, all meeting at the Millennium Bridge. Last year we met also at 118 other cities around the world in 20 countries or 18 countries, I believe, um, including Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, all of that. So maybe this time the women will start the revolution in Saudi Arabia. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's only a month and a half from now, but please join us. And there are, I think, information about this. And I think we'll have just a small um, video about uh, the organization. So you can join us some more. And thank you very much. Fifteen years ago, Bosnia was in the midst of a horrific ethnic cleansing. The killing would last four years. Rape was a weapon of war. As many as 50,000 women were raped and tortured. Many held captive in rape camps for months. Zainab Salbi, a young Iraqi woman living in the U.S., read about the war and watched as the international community failed to respond. Uh, having lived in Iraq, I know what it feels to be in war. And you feel isolated and you feel the world has forgotten about you. It was my personal responsibility to do something about it when I could. Newly married, Zainab and her then husband, Amjad, took the money they had saved for their honeymoon and went to the Balkans. I was 23 years old at the time. I wanted to do something to help few Bosnian women. Zainab went door to door meeting women and listening to their stories. It's terrible when you have everything and then suddenly it's gone. I had no husband, no son and no money. You don't get used to the stories and I think one should never get used to the stories. I would worry about myself the day I stop crying. Those stories moved Zainab to start Women for Women International. The organization began with 14 women, and each month there were more and more. The intention was always, how can we help her stand on her feet, even in the midst of war? Women for Women began matching women in Bosnia with sponsor sisters in the U.S. who could provide them with emotional and financial support. Sarajevo was besieged. It was very dangerous. Here we are in the tunnel. It was the only way we could leave or enter the city. Letters smuggled through a tunnel were a lifeline between the sponsor and her sister. Dear Colin, you write that you hope we are safe. In this city, there is no safe place. When they got a letter, it was like a miracle. Finally, we knew that we are not abandoned from the whole world. Rwanda, 1994. 
In just 100 days, nearly a million people were killed. Half a million women were raped. Again, the world did nothing. When the Rwandese genocide took place, a woman contacted us and she said, I love what you're doing in Bosnia. I think you need to do it in Rwanda. Then every country, it came this way. Someone said, could you please come and help us? We really need this. Could you please come and help us in Congo? Could you please come and help us in Afghanistan? This will be a new beginning for you. We'll provide you the support. We'll connect you with another sister from another part of the world. We'll teach you skills so you can get jobs. We'll give you training about women's rights and about literacy. Over and over again, it's been the same. If you can help us to gain new skills, if you can help us to learn how to read and write, believe you me, we'll take this country to a different place. The $27 each woman gets every month, gradually up to the end of a year, leaves this woman's life changed completely. It gives them an energy to continue saying, even me, I can make it, even me, I can do it, even I can, I can change my life. I bought land and my children resumed school, so I feel a complete woman today. The teacher educates us about women's rights. We were like blind people, but now we can see. We take women and move them from a victim to survivor to active citizen. In 15 years, Women for Women has connected more than 150,000 women survivors of war in 10 countries with sponsors worldwide. They graduate from the year-long program with new skills and the confidence to use them. They are very proud. They are businesswomen now. They are respected women. This is my land from here up to there where you can see the trees. With support from Women for Women International, Violette in Rwanda turned a plot of land into fields of crops, producing income and food for her family and jobs for other women in her village. She has basically transformed the lives of everybody in her community. So, so proud of you. And I am so Yes, you're proud of yourself. Very happy. One woman came to me and she said, I am the new definition of a businesswoman. One by one, these new businesswomen are helping to rebuild the economies of their war-torn countries. I expect that businesses come to us and say, Women for Women, can you provide us qualified women to work? And in five years, you will see different face of Kosovo. From Afghanistan to Bosnia and Herzegovina, nearly 40,000 women have received microcredit loans from Women for Women, enabling them to start their own small businesses. Ten years ago, Lucia received her first microcredit loan of $400. Today, she employs over 25 women in the production of Ivar, a traditional red pepper puree. Now I'm working and able to support my family. We are happy. It couldn't be better. It's the best. The women produce 600 jars daily, bringing in 3,000 U.S. dollars a day. Nobody believed the business would be so successful. She is my role model just to say how women can do if they have opportunity. Fifteen years ago, when Women for Women International was started, I had no idea what would the consequences be. For someone to rise up from horrible, horrible atrocities and to stand on their feet, to smile, and dance and celebrate is an act of resilience and their courage to speak out, to break their silence is an amazing, amazing experience. 
These strong women are also building stronger villages and stronger nations. As they redefine what it means to be a businesswoman, they are creating stability and peace. With Women for Women, they are proving that one woman can change anything, and many women can change everything. Sometimes you smuggle. (laughs) (laughs) So, in fact, we have two people from that region in our office, and we were just discussing it yesterday, and they've promised to make me some. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll try to get you some also. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so who would like to ask a question? Yeah, the lady over there. Hi. Um, first of all, I'd like to say that I was completely overwhelmed by both you and your speech, and um, I have had the privilege of listening to you before, so I feel that much more privileged. And um, I've worked for a, a women's organisation in Cyprus, which is a post-conflict community, um, post-conflict country, and um, again, in a women's organisation, I started from a very young age, where I thought that um, it would be very easy to change the world, and I felt that I alone had the energy to do it as well. So um, only at the age of 24, I feel very kind of um, disappointed at times when I feel that there's so much, like, there's so little in my hands, really. But, you know, you, you keep struggling. And it's amazing to see how NGOs like this, you know, bottom-up, uh, just have been able to empower women and make change. Um, one dilemma that we have in Cyprus is, you know, it's a post-conflict country. There has been ceasefire for the last 34 years. Um, and so the, the remnants of the battle and the war aren't really as strong as they were in countries like Rwanda. So, um, you know, I do think, feel that in countries where the conflict is closer, people do have um, a stronger urge to move towards change. So we do have the disadvantage that it's been so dominant. Um, my question to you is, um, in a women's organization where the resources are so restricted, um, at the moment, the, the biggest dilemma that we're facing is whether to invest in um, empowering women in bottom-up, uh, with de- bottom-up development projects such as this, or directing our resources into getting women on the agenda in terms of um, finding a solution f- um, for the problem in Cyprus. And, and how do you strike that balance when you have um, a small organization with limited resources? Well, first, thank you. I hope the overwhelming was a positive one. Sometimes it is negative. So, (laughs) thank you. Uh, Second is, I would say, you need to have a bridge campaign in Cyprus. Imagine if uh, both Cypriots women from both sides uh, sort of meet up on on a bridge and say, because this is what we, when we did that for the first time last year, Rwandese and Congolese women who otherwise, uh, there's a huge tension between these two countries. Um, and the two con- and the two governments were not happy with us. They're like, we're not happy. And we said, okay, okay, okay. We're just the two women are just going to celebrate on both borders, and only few will meet in the bridge. And the bridge you can make up. I mean, it doesn't have to be actual bridge. Um, and that day, hundreds, that, you know, just of women just start celebrating and dancing and all of these things. And they joined, and the governments on both sides looked so shocked 
that in honoring of women, they kept the borders open for 24 hours. In Bosnia, Bosniak and Serbian and Croat women met on the bridge that uh, the first uh, two people got killed, the boy and the girl. And, and it, but it's a public statement. It wasn't that they don't talk to each other, especially if they're in Sarajevo, but it was a public statement saying, it's about time. So I would say you need to do some public statement of women on both sides um, to come together. In terms of resources, there's obviously, well, I want to comment on the money resources because it's relevant. According to Nike and Novo Foundations, two cents out of every development aid dollar goes to girls, for example. I don't know about women, but we are still getting the breadcrumbs of uh, development and humanitarian aid as opposed to not even a, an not even a decent share, let alone an equal share. But I don't think that's your question. Your question is about your own NGO. And in that case, it's discipline. You cannot change it all. It's all important, but you just cannot change it all. So you focus and you zoom in, and you zoom in and you become very good at one thing. And trust that your alliance and partnership with others and your dialogue with other organizations will actually help push the cause forward without you having to do all of it. Um, it's painful discipline because I know you want to do all of it, <laughs> uh, but you have to have it in order to succeed also. And you do the other work through partnerships and alliances. I hope I answered your question. Yes. At the back. Don't say, all right, cool. Uh, thank you for, very much for your great talk again. Um, I, just want, I was just wondering to extent to which you, the NGO such as, uh, as great as this one can work with the UN at some point because I know some other microfinance institutions who are doing some developmental work in Malawi, for example, and they're getting some um, contributions from the UN, which in some cases makes a lot of difference. So. I was just wondering if you cooperate with other NGOs or UN in particular. Yeah. Well, this group is right now 17 years old, so this is sort of an old video. Uh, I just want to talk a, little, a step back before I go forward. When I was 23, I started it. I had zero nishta nadarian wala ishi. I was, you know, really. So each one of you are going to be able to do whatever you want to do because if I was able to do it as a refugee in America, so can you, you know. Um, um, so. The secret here is you keep your financial independence, if you can. It's very hard when you're raising money, and I spend more time raising money, unfortunately, than I do in the program, truth be said. But 55% of our revenue comes from grassroots, comes from people who give us from 10 pounds to 300 pounds. It's grassroots, small chunks at a time. And I have to say, even in the midst of the financial crisis, Though, the truth be said, we were saved uh, by a big chunk of major donor <laughs> who gave us $15 million, God bless him, you know, uh, <laughs> it's true. Um, it's the grassroots that kept us alive until that, you know, until we got one breathing room, you know. Um, so I would say you must make sure that whatever you do, you still have the chunk of your supports from the people, from the grassroots. And then you can take it from the whatever it is, whether it's the UN, sometimes you have to take money from the corporations or foundations or whatever it is. But you keep always that 
you know, the, the essence of, I believe, the essence should always be grassroots. Um, we do get funding from the UN, particularly UNDP and UNACR, um, and that has not impacted our ability to push the UN. And, and, but it's um, how you push in the, I think you can get money and I think you can push is how you push. Um, and not a confrontational way, but more in dialogue and more in, in pushing. But I didn't feel our ability to get money from UNACR or, or UNDP hindered our ability to criticize the UN for their role in rape in Congo or for the increase of, uh, of the attack in the last few months. Uh, not at all. It was, it was not, you know, political buy-in. Okay. Over here. Thank you for the amazing talk. And uh, my question goes, uh, you just mentioned a resolution 1325 and uh, a couple other resolutions that, that came after that. And I would like to ask you regarding resolution 1820, if uh, after the, the approval of the resolution, uh, if, if you've seen anything, uh, any of the, the follow-up or, or the expectations that we had under the specific resolution uh, precisely linking uh, rape as a weapon of war being a threat to international peace and security. We know that uh, this phrase, threat to international peace and security, is the, the potential trigger for any other military intervention. And so I, I would be interested to, to hear your take on that. Thank you. Wow, OK. Um, you know what, I'll answer it in different ways. As in, you know that there was a 10th anniversary of 1325 last September or last fall. Um, I think there's some progress in it, uh, but not much. I, I honestly think in terms of the UN, but there's progress, as in America for the first time is having a national action plan, for example, on 1325 and allocated some money. There's some progress where few countries joined in actually in the last 10th anniversary. I look at it as, my, my real opinion is, <laughs> These are, process, these are progresses, that's good. These UN Security Council resolutions, all of these things, these are all moving step forward. But the truth is, if we just look at it, in a, in a, we are still, the issue of women is still a marginalized discussion at the UN level and at the governmental level. Uh, there's a progress. What in, in, in the resolutions you mentioned or in the fact that we have UN women, for example, now with the leadership of Michelle Bachelet, which is fantastic, I think. It's absolutely, she's really brilliant. It's all, you know, it's baby steps. <laughs> and it's just really, um, the, the, I, I, the, the radical change, <laughs> you know, that we really need to get it in terms of serious allocation of resources and voice for women is not there yet, in my opinion. I'll, I, so the way I will answer it is there is an Italian story of a, a disturbed child and he was doing a lot of damage in the school. And the, the school gave him a puzzle that will take him months to solve. Oceans and mountains and rivers and all of these things. And they thought this will keep him busy and he will not destroy anybody. Any, he will not hit any child. And they came after a few minutes to check on the child and he had solved the puzzle. And everyone was surprised. How could you solve the puzzle? It's 15 minutes only. And they saw that he flipped the puzzle upside down and saw that there's a shape of a simple apple and he followed that apple and he solved the puzzle for 15 minutes. I argue that the apple is women. And really, the UN has not gotten that, in my opinion. You know, there's some progress. Good. I, I don't, I don't want to dismiss the progress, really. I want to respect it and acknowledge it. And by far, we need to go like 90 times more 
steps, you know, a hundred times more steps in order to reach what it is. And we need to get that women are the apple. You can't, you can't get uh, MDG goals if you don't focus, focus on women. Human development goals if you do not focus on women. You cannot get peace and security if you do not focus on women. And I'm not sure that consciousness, that consciousness is there yet. It's in a transformative, we're living in a transformative era, but that consciousness in the system that the gender balance is a must is not there yet. So I'm not, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but in a generic way, sort of addressed it, hopefully. Hi, um, thank you for your talk. Um, my question is, where do you think achieving gender inequality begins, um, especially in the case of Afghanistan? Um, and like, how do those norms develop? Like, is it within the social framework, political? Um, does it begin in the home? And yeah. I would say all direct. I don't think that there's one secret. Uh, I mean, I do believe in investing in women, <laughs> but I don't think there is. If you only do this, it will trigger this. Uh, laws are important. Government commitments and support is important. Infrastructure building for women, particularly in terms of school, all of that is important. Job opportunities and being conscious about that is very important. And of course, the household is incredibly important. And as all change, change is slow, and then we are living in changing times. Um, but I don't, I, I, I really, I honestly don't think, I think a combination of all of us makes a difference. It's not one of us. And in, in, in Women for Women's case saying, go to the most grassroots women, to the most marginalized, socially excluded women, invest in her, and, she, and, and, and help her create that change within the household. And that's one. We also have a very small discrete program in which go to the men. Now, we don't have the resources because it's a distraction of resources, because uh, we measure every penny that we spend. The team knows. <laughs> um, but we, we only start working with men in leadership positions. And in Afghanistan, we trained 400 imams, for example, on leadership uh, on the meaning of leadership, but uh, under that we say, if you want to be a good leader, you need to understand what women are saying. And we help these 400 imams to write their Friday sermons to, in, to deliver in their mosque. That by itself is huge. So I believe, I really believe in the possibilities of change. Um, and I don't believe, oh, it's people's culture, they're not willing to do that. I believe if you, lot, if you really look at the essence of why there is this practice, then you need to, you can, there is a way to change it, whether from within or whatever. So that's, but I depend on other women's groups who invest in women leaders. And I depend on other groups who are making sure that there are resource allocation to the community. And I depend on, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just not one, one thing. I really think it's, but it takes consciousness. So if, it, if you ask President Kigami from Rwanda and you say, why did you invest in women? Because he was very clear and strategic. It was one of his first steps. He says, I didn't do it for women. I cannot build my country if I do not make sure that women's voices are up. So it was his conscious decision, I'm going to have to invest in order to fix the country. That consciousness does not exist in the UN, in my opinion. It does not exist in Afghanistan, definitely. And frankly, it doesn't exist in our foreign policies. 
whether it is America or UK or whatever, it doesn't exist in foreign policies. I think Hillary Clinton is making a lot of progress in terms of statements and all of that, but there's a long way to go. Thank you. The lady over there. I'm going to stay here so I can see you. Thank you. Um, I just wondered if I could um, pick up slightly on your comment. You alluded to South Africa, um, where I've been working on and off for 30 years. Um, um, it's sort of coming across very nicely from your presentation, the focus on marginalized communities of women. And I'm curious about the way in which you manage social class differences when you're involved in interventions in a particular country. I mean, it's very clear in the South African case that your uh, women are disproportionately represented in poverty, unemployment statistics, and women in rural areas are particularly acutely marginalized. Yeah and they coincide with the former apartheid era Bantustan geographies as well. Um, whereas sort of in the public face of the country, there's obviously a fantastic number of women in parliament, in cabinet, decision-making, government bodies and so forth, but it's been very difficult to bridge that appearance of gender equality with some of the realities of inequality and uh, discrimination. Um, and I'm sure that must play out in different ways in other countries as well as you've been involved in. It's a very good point and you obviously really, I don't know much about South Africa. All what I know is during the negotiations women were adamant that we want our rights in the constitution. So you know much more about it. I do know and I'm going to answer it in two ways. There's a disconnect between women at the elite level and women at the grassroots level, in my opinion, often. It happens particularly in Palestine. There was a huge debate on the constitutional reform for them. It happened in many countries that there is the elite advocacy, women rights advocacy and the grass and what's happening on the very grassroots. And there needs to be dialogue not in terms of, and I'm really talking from a particular experience, it was particularly Palestine, but I see it in a lot of Middle Eastern countries and Afghanistan included, dialogue between how do we represent the issue that is really reflecting what the women at the grassroots are saying. So that's one thing, is that there needs to be a bridge in here, more a better bridge than it is right now in some countries. And then the other one, I think, it's a process. I don't know, I don't know how to answer your question. I think as much as It's a process, obviously, to start with, but it's how do you keep the, the most important thing the most important thing? In my very small organization, we say, what is the most important thing that we need to look at every single week and every single month? What are the indicators we need to always look at? And you know, in our cases, there are a whole bunch of indicators that we're constantly watching you know, to see our work. I'm not sure, I'm, you know, I don't know how to answer your question as much as if women are not one of these national indicators in terms of what's happening to them in terms of development and poverty and reduction of violence and more access to health and ID cards in South Africa and all of these things, then, then they're never going to be part of the national agenda. <laughs> then it's going to be the discrepancy between the law and between the reality. And I don't, you know, again, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, um, but for right now, and this is what I have, but maybe we can talk more about it. <laughs> yeah. And then the lady there. 
just just here with the show. Hi, Marine Destry. Um, I, I was interested in your program in, in training. I'm working with Leeds International and we do sustainable development training, a leadership training as well. Um, just about to move to Pakistan to implement some of their project there. And I was really interested in, you talk about rights awareness and you talk about business skills. And I was interested in the part rights played in empowerment and where do you think they're played? Because they've been discredited lately thinking that right awareness is not really playing any role and it's just mainly talking about things that don't have an impact. So I was willing to have your view on this discussion and do you think that right awareness actually has an impact? It's about, without getting into the, the, the terminologies, for me it's about building the confidence, knowing that this is what you really have rights for, knowing and often women don't know about their basic rights, as in they, the law says something. Inheritance is one of the most common experience we face by our women who um, don't, you know, the husband died or whatever, and they just don't inherit, even though the law does allow them to inherit. So just knowing that and accessing it, and often they use their money actually to, to hire a lawyer so they can get, well, there was one woman in Congo who 20 years later she sued her in-laws and she got her home basically. So it is about first, in my opinion, raising your confidence. So in our observation, I'm going to talk about our program, the first three months is when there is silence usually and it's the three months mark that women start transforming, breaking their speaking. So that's the first three months is sort of saying, yeah, okay, it's, I ha I'm not the only one. Yeah, all of this, is, this is when the transformation starts in clicking. It's just knowing that this is, this is, your, this is what you have access to and you are worthy, and remember your value. Because sometimes you get beaten up so much you forget your value. And remember your value, not teaching, this is your, you know. Um, so that's one thing, and I think it's actually almost crucial. What does it mean to have be economic development? It cannot be, I'm actually, I'm not a fan of only microcredit programs who just give money, and without understanding the, the her knowledge is very important her knowledge of what is her rights, what are her rights, what, are, what, what can she do, what, all of these things, it's very important how she spends the money, you know? Um, and this is, to read more, I'm, I'm actually very influenced by Denise Kundiotti's theory of the negotiating uh, power. And so that for me, what the what, rights awareness without, and I, empowerment, no empowerment, and it's not that, it's about remembering your value, building your self-confidence, self-esteem, having a support network where you can, they can hold you, your sisters, sort of, and then knowing what you can access and knowing the system, learning the system is, uh, you know, whenever I move to a new country, someone needs to hold your hands and tell you this is where the machine is and this is the grocery and all of that. You really, you know, women are really not told a lot of times, especially at the grassroots, that they have these rights. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I'm, I'm less uh, interested in the terminology, more interested in it is... It, and, and that by itself, all of that, is like, uh-huh. My favorite story that I always say was an Afghan woman lifted her burqa. Her face was full of tattoos. In Afghanistan, tattoos is called the makeup of the poor. So I was in Iraq, actually. And she said, my husband always beat me up, and I really never thought that he doesn't have that right. I thought it's just part of his right. He grew up with a household and she grew up, it's, it's just, that's, that's normal. And she said, I finally came and I realized it's not in his right. It's not in his right. So she said, he once wanted to slap me and I just like, don't do that. 
I swear to you my jaws were like up to here, I was like, and you're alive. And she said, he was so shocked that I stopped him. You know? And I told him, talk to me. What are you trying to say? And she said, no, in her case, they stayed married and they're happy. And that year, nothing. when I met her in that year, was okay. Another woman's case, they got divorced. But it's just awareness. Oh, you cannot do that to me anymore. So whatever you call it, that is very important, in my opinion. Okay. Now, why don't we take three at once, shall we? So we start with you over there, yes, and then the one up the behind, and then you. Thank you. Um, okay, my question is a bit related to things that have been said already, but um, I wanted to ask more about the impact you see at a very low community level, you could say. Um, so what I'm thinking is first in terms of your microcredit uh, programs, um, how do you, um, how does Women for Women International ensure, or what do you think is required in order to make it sustainable and to make it la uh, last uh, for a long period of time? Um, as well as uh, what do you think, uh, or what have you seen is the reaction of, let's say, other men in the community uh, to this um, change, perhaps, that they're, they're seeing in how women are um, working and behaving? Yeah. Thank you. And then there's the lady at the back. Um, how do you deal with it when women from different cultures can, have... Can you stand up? Sorry. I think we can't quite hear you. Sorry. <laughs> how do you deal with it when women from different cultures have different definitions of gender equality and do you think it's due to a lack of organisations like your own or to cultural differences? And then um, the next round will allow a man for gender balance. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask um, which country that you're not operating in would you like to be operating in and why, basically? Great. Okay, so we'll take We'll do it fast. Oops. Uh, I will say uh, only because I can't see in this side. So, um, Asad. Uh, from the last uh, top, um, not operating. Well, operating is Afghanistan, Iraq, Congo, uh, Rwanda, Sudan, Nigeria, and Bosnia and Kosovo. And we are in the process of assessing Liberia to expand to Liberia. Uh, not operating in so many other countries. The day we run out of business would be a very good day. Um, but seriously, you know, and it's uh, simply a matter of capacity and resources. It's uh, do we have the capacity to expand and handle expansion? Do we have the money to expand? So it's no more, no less. You know, so that's the gist of it. Um, different definitions of gender equality. I highly believe in different definitions of gender equality. I'll give you a quick story. I was in Pakistan the day the Taliban were overthrown with meeting with heads of women's organizations, just by happenstance, actually. And I was so excited, like I am today, about the, you know, the, the, the change. You know, but the, uh, I was like, wow, they're left, finally. What are you going to ask? You know, what kind of reform in the Constitution? What kind of law are you going to ask? And they said, uh, Sharia law. I said, excuse me? 
no, 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 the Taliban are overthrown. No, it's America. You know? And they said, <laughs> they said, Sharia law. And they said, don't, and, and they saw my confusion. Now, I'm a Muslim. You know, I still would not, it would never occur to me that I, I would ask for Sharia law. And they said, don't confuse our hatred of Taliban with our hatred of Islam. We want Sharia law. And, and we are women's rights activists. And we want this and this and this. And I believe it's okay. That's their decision. I actually really believe Sharia law is just a framework of expression. But as long, just like I don't care about the word, uh, this word or this word, at least where I am, as long as you make sure that there's these rights, you know, the details of it worked out, then, you know, it's their decision. And if I am to ask a fellow Muslim woman to respect my decision to wear what I'm wearing, I must, I must, I must respect equally her decision to wear what she's wearing or to her lifestyle as, as, as I ask her and expect her to uh, live my lifestyle. And I say that as, because that's when a lot of the, the same thing is about Africa or any other culture you want. It's, just, it's the same answer I would say. It's we are, we are beautiful in our differences and, our dif and we are perfect in our imperfection. And I'm really happy with that, no judgment. Um, men in the community, we do uh, for especially a group called Women for Women we get a lot of jokes on us to start with. Why not women for men? Men for women, men, all of these. And we know all the jokes, you know, it's like the first conversation happens. Then we do the business and then the same men who's come and they say, we want to join you. Um, we do, the, re the way we actually decided to look at community, and we just, we're, I, I, literally just today I'm looking at our evaluation from one of our exit uh, classes of about 9,000 women. and we notice that the changes where the women are in control of their decision, for example, nutrition, hygiene, things like that, are very high after they graduate from our program. But the changes that relate to the community or to their husbands, still changing, but not in the same radical ways that the other changes are happening, as in contraception or uh, birth control or whatever it is, you know, or as in running for election or, or community decision making. And so we realize, and, and we still, I mean, reinforce this message that in order to make that change, you must talk with men. You cannot isolate men and look at them on the side. You must engage in a dialogue with men, and a respectful dialogue with men, not you are bad, bad, bad. And so we developed this training program that I mentioned earlier. It's called men's leadership training for men. It does approach the leaders. And in the case of Congo, for example, we work with military commanders. We, we work with the mayor, the, the, the priest, the pastor, the whatever it is. Whoever is con conceived as a leader in that community. And it's usually six to eight, six to ten men maximum in a community where we choose. And we feel that it's really important that we talk with them and we approach them and we have a dialogue with them. And when these men uh, come on our side, if you may, or, or see the logic of it, and I can go into, I really can give you a lot of the reason, but we have men who actually stopped, um, who now order their soldiers not to rape because they never thought about the association with HIV and rape. And it's a very hard call the decision, but it was a change. Uh, that eventually moved into a moral one, but a year later, not immediately. But we do have the, the, I really believe in the engagement of men, you know. And the way we started now is the first dialogue we have is with the men. 
then they, because once they are not threatened and they know what we're doing, then we go and meet with the women and then the community to tell them what we're doing. And then we recruit the women and we do our program. But at that time, the community is just leaving us alone. But in the meantime, we keep on working with the leadership. So that's our approach. And then the microcredit, we do not do microcredit. We only do microcredit in two countries, which is Bosnia and uh, Afghanistan. And actually, all our other community active, all our economic activities is uh, related to other sectors. For example, we have commercial farming initiatives, organic commercial farming initiatives, where we are leasing land from the public, from the government, 200 acres in Rwanda, for example, I don't know how many acres in Sudan, for a, a lengthy period of time, 20 to 90 years. I call it the British control of Hong Kong. And, and this is women's control of Rwanda, you know. Um, and then we go to the private sector and we ask them to actually ask, you know, buy from our women, you know, buy produce from our women, and we cut deals with that. And then we distribute the land in the form of co-ops uh, to the women. And just by doing that, that, we're doubling the per capita income of their women, that the, the co-ops members compared to other things. So I believe that we should, I believe we should um, ex further explore microcredit, and there are lots of great microcredit agencies, and it's not the only solution for women. We must include women in other non-micro activities, and that includes formal employment. We have partnerships with companies like Kate Spade, is a designer that outsourced to our women in Bosnia and in Kosovo and in Rwanda, and now in Afghanistan. Uh, so it's more looking at how do you engage more women in the formal economy or semi-formal economy, but I, I really don't believe that the only solution for poor women is microcredit. One of the solutions for excluded women is microcredit. It cannot be the only one. And I think really this is where the debate needs to move on and to lift from. And, and it, it, often when I say I work with women, oh, you do microcredit. No, I have, you know, not only. I mean, some of it we do. A lot of the women go into get microcredit loans, but it can't be the exclusive solution. I'm, and I really don't believe it should be the exclusive solution. We need macro credit. Okay, the question over there. And I think this probably should be the last. Hi, um, thank you for coming. Um, my question would be, you, you said that you did not work with um, the countries you mentioned that you did not work with. Um, what steps are being taken from your organization um, in collaboration with um, organizations in Iran and China? And that would be my first question. And my second question would be, could you elaborate more on how you would go about to bring in the women in Afghanistan into the negotiation table? Uh, so the question is, do we work with women in China? In, yeah, the women's rights organizations in uh, China and, yeah. and, and Iran. And how would you go about bringing the women to the negotiating table in um, Afghanistan? Okay, great. So no, we do not work with women's rights organizations in China only because we only work in conflicts and these are the countries that we can work on it. Although you can argue part of China has conflict. Uh, but no. However, we're just starting a debate. I actually think we need to have a dialogue with the Chinese women and we do have, are we having women in China doing bridge meeting? On the Great Walls, okay, great. So we do have a starting, basically, women are meeting on the Great Wall of China for the Women's Day, International Women's Day. So it's, an, it's a starting, but uh, not, I think this is pretty new. Um, 
And it is a big issue because a lot of people from Philippines, from China, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big issue where how do you stay focused because we must need, reach efficiency and scale to make sure that we have the best usage of every dollar to the women, you know, use and, and, and reach out to different countries. So we ha there's, there's a, it's a struggle that we're constantly having to navigate. Um, in terms of how do we go about the uh, women in uh, Afghanistan, yes. So in my experience, at least in America, is people are quoting, you know, and politicians in America particularly, are saying, well, we cannot talk about nation building because our people do not want it. And it's just this whole women rights, Afghanistan, it's just not going to be. So we might as well give up and just talk to the Taliban. And I, mind you, I'm not saying don't talk to the Taliban. I'm just saying don't talk if women are not included. You know, I'm just to be very specific, you know, just women needs to be whatever decision women need to be part of it and they can do whatever they want to do um, so one step which is this is what we're good at as a grassroots organization is we're that's why we're having a pledge and we're having the focusing all our campaign on Afghanistan is to actually mobilize the grassroots it matters when you go back to the politicians and you say huh we just got you a thousand names or ten thousand names or a hundred million names or whatever it is saying this this matters you know it does make a difference my biggest lesson on that I was next to the Iraqi Prime Minister a few years ago and again he said women for women <laughs> really and then I said um, you know and they were joking all of them uh, and then I said uh, sir we just had a survey of uh, 2,000 Iraqi women across the country and let me tell you what they say about you you know <laughs> And that discussion immediately said, can I see the report? You know, wow, the, who are these women? Oh, okay, all of these things. So I really believe in the power of grassroots and getting the voices of the grassroots. And you do that by, and we're doing in Afghanistan, by two things. As a women for women group, we're asking the grassroots to, to speak up about it and mobilizing this campaign. But in the meantime, we're actually in dialogue with women parliamentarian and women, other women's organizations who are focusing on women in leadership basically on and they are pushing uh, but these are backdoor discussions not from you know they are pushing on how do you get more women at the negotiating table so you do it in all what i what we can do is our expertise which is grassroots mobilization and and really thanks to kate who is the director in here who is the champion of that well i'd like to make a before we close i would yeah. like to make a little comment and really an addition I mean, I'm thinking a lot about what you say, and I agree with you very much. I mean, I think gender imbalance is at the heart of conflict in the sense that I don't know of any war or armed conflict where there isn't a gender imbalance and where, in fact, the warring parties... I mean, why is it so important to warring parties, whether they're nationalists or religious extremists, that issues about the role of women, why does it play such a role? And we haven't really explained it, but nevertheless, I think there is a key link between gender imbalance and conflict, between domestic violence and violence, mm -hmm. um, and, and political violence, and it's something we need to explore, and it's something, I think you're absolutely right, that the UN don't get. 
they, they pay lip service to gender mean, mainstreaming and they all say how nice, nice mm -hmm. Zainab, nice mm -hmm. Mary, mm -hmm. but they don't really believe it. They just think they're being nice to the women. Yeah. They don't understand that it's at the heart of how you deal with things. And I've thought a lot, and, and one thought I have is that in order to get, for women to get into prominent positions like Hillary Clinton, you actually have to play a male role. It's something to do with our political process, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, you know, Hillary Clinton had to be the most hawkish person on the Senate Armed Services Committee before she could. So somehow we need to think also, I think, about the political process and mm -hmm. how we create. It's, it's not just about getting more women in there. It's about changing. Absolutely the roles of politicians and I don't know whether that's something you've been giving thought to. I think it's both. I th a, a, a Mexican woman parliamentarian was telling me once, she was in the finance committee in, Mexico, in the parliament. She said, when I was the only woman, I hesitated to talk. Mm. I wanted to prove that I'm like the guys and think like the guys and I wanted them to respect me. But when I was later on one of four women, I spoke. So I think it's quality yeah, and quantities. I, agree, I think yeah, we actually. need to increase the quality, the quantity, in order to give us confidence. Because otherwise, if you are the only one in the room, then you do. I mean, we all then go through our own uh, personal processing of confidence. I mean, I I have to tell, I, and I meet a lot with American politicians, and every I know every time I mention women for women, infrastructure building, invest in women, they roll their eyes. And I see them there rolling their eyes, you know, yeah. and, you know, and it's, so you go through your own insecurities and, you know, to be accepted by the things. Now, it's very easy for me because it's just, you can't escape it, women for women, you know, so <laughs> might as well do it fully, you know, <laughs> but if you're a politician, you know, so it's hard. So I think it's the first go for the quantity, quantity and my bets is eventually when we have enough confidence, because it's our issues then you start working, then the quality starts improving. Then you start, then we start having more guts to, to speak up and then you reform because I totally believe that the political infrastructure is a very male, it's a masculine one, not male, it's a masculine exactly. one. And that we need to balance it to be the masculine and the feminine. And to do that, you just need more. And it's so horrible, the political process. I mean, most women don't want to do it. Right, right. I wouldn't, right. But I encourage, especially, I honestly, my, whenever I speak to particularly students, I say, please go more to politics and to the corporations. Because we are the majority in the civil society and by far underrepresented in the corporate world and the government world. And the only way we can change it is if we populate that world as well as a civil society, you know, <laughs> you know, so, but I would say we have, you have to, you have to go to that. I mean, you don't have to do whatever makes you happy, uh, <laughs> but we have to consciously say, how can I go to that world and change it? <laughs> well, on that note, which is a great note, thank you very, very much.
I'm sorry I don't have Ivor to give you, Mary, but um, we have some flowers to say thank you very much and thank you for hosting us here tonight and everyone at LSE. It's been an amazing evening. Thank you. The other thing I want to say is don't go into corporations just yet. International Women's Day is happening on the 8th of March and we want you all to join us on the bridge. Be part of the movement that's happening. It is a global movement and we'd welcome all of you there. And also, just to let you know, this has been pod-streamed. So we'll send you the link, send it round to lots of people, click on lots of likes and let's keep in touch. And thank you very much. Brilliant.